Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Tim Stafford, Mike Erie, two middle-aged white dudes offering <laughs> thoughts, opinions, uh, attempts at being humorous, and for some reason, um, many of you tune in. And those of you who are not tuning in know who you are, even though you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> Um, just existentially know who you are somewhere. That's out there. right. You know, there's something. There's something missing. There's a hole in your heart. A God-shaped and hole. And yes, exactly, a revelation-shaped hole, if you will. <laughs> Timothy, um, good morning. At least when good we're morning. recording. How are you? It's Labor Day, and we're laboring. That's right. Yeah, people are actually. This is a. This is a almost as live as the podcast can get. Yes, Tim was great because it takes a bunch of work to turn this sucker around, believe it or not. And I was, <laughs> was moving houses last week. And so, and then I, and then we, a day after we moved, I went up to visit my son in Ohio. So, and I got back yesterday. So it has been a whirlwind, a dervish, a whirling dervish. No, and uh, so, so Tim was great. We, this is like, this will come out when? Tomorrow in a couple hours. No, I'm gonna. This is the same day. I'm aiming for it, dude. You are you are ridiculous. We'll see what happens. Thank, would you thank Shauna for me for? You Why, know, she's not doing anything. It's Labor Day. J.K. Yeah, she's uh, laboring with the kids. Is she neighboring? Awesome. Laboring. You guys, are, you guys are such great neighbors too. Um, Tim, <laughs> Tim, and his wife and his family are such good neighbors. They've shared a bathroom. With, at their neighbor's house while they've remodeled their own. Let, let, I don't know if that makes us the good neighbors. Well, it definitely makes them the good neighbors. I know, but the fact that they were willing to agree to that makes you, you have to be at least tolerable. I mean, that's pretty, oh, yeah. That's pretty amazing. That's, that's, yeah, that's ridiculous. So, Tim, I've well, got, oh, go one ahead. One of the neighbors, Claire, she's, she's from Louisiana. She's got that southern hospitality. That's right. So she like yeah, she'll get do. mad at me if I if I knock on the front door before I come in or if That's right. every time I borrow bananas I always replace the bananas the same day and she's like stop replacing the bananas just let me give you bananas. Is that a metaphor? No. Okay. That's a literal we're replacing Actual bananas cuz I make banana oatmeal pancakes for the kids every morning. Yeah, you do. Every morning. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I mean, we, dude, we grew up on Pop-Tarts. It's fine. You know, I mean, they don't need. I mean, they're healthy. It's just a lot of work every morning. Yeah, but if you're not healthy, then who matters? Oh, that's something just happened. I don't know. Someone walked in our door. I'm not sure what's happening. Hello? There's my wife. <laughs> so that's good. she must. I was wondering where she was. She must have been in the garage. So we are surrounded by boxes. It's glorious. I was mowing the back. She was mowing the backyard. So we are recording. Oh, wow. So anything, there's there's the peace sign. She's <laughs> she's, you know, I I think she forgets sometimes we're on YouTube. I didn't know you were actually. Yeah, no, we are actually recording. This is live today. This is Prime happening time. today. Um, and now she's making faces at me through the window. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what it's like to feel supported in your work on Labor Day. Now, um, Tim, let's just get right to it. All right, we got All right. our audience has other things to be doing than listening to us, which right. we're always surprised they even do that much. And, and we've got things. I've got back boxes to unpack, my friend. Yeah, metaphorically and literally. 
Um, but speaking of unpacking our baggage, we made some comments around Christian counseling. And <laughs> there were some thoughts. I stand by my comments. There were some thoughts that we received via the interwebs. And, and I thought they were, they were great counterpoints. And Lord knows we were wrong about a lot of things. So um, this was posted on Facebook, uh, our Facebook Facebook page. I agree with the spirit of the discussion, but as someone who was in the counseling stream for a while during my master's program, I don't know that you captured the nuances of the development of the psychiatry, psychology, and counseling as a field. It's not quite the same thing as other specialized medical fields, precisely because its practices are so tightly bound to a particular worldview. All right, so, so I see where this thing is going, and, and I think that's a good counter that, listen, the way you're going to approach this whole thing is really bound up to what, what you see it is to be human, uh, what you think it is to be healthy, like how you define a lot of those words. He continues, historically speaking, oh, oh he, I missed a sentence. He says, it's not simply about the study of biological systems, it's about the philosophical assumptions that inform and guide the development of cognitive therapies. Historically speaking, the development of psychiatry, psychology, counseling is distinguished by its allegiances to those philosophies. This is where we can track the divide between secular and religious practice. It's not so much about the sort of culture wars you were referencing, rather it is about the fundamental theories that shape different approaches to cognitive therapy. And these differences can and do have immense significance in terms of the kind of therapy one receives. Perhaps the most significant is the matter of outcomes and goals. While the field is complex, we can root common approaches in clearly defined allegiances to the ego with an emphasis on adaptation, the employment of coping <laughs> mechanisms, and an allegiance to matters of self-improvement or manipulation of the self. Historically speaking, the pathologizing Pathologizing of religious experience and the discrimination of religious theories and practices is very real. And I don't mean the more menial biblical counseling, which often operates apart from regulated and educated slash licensed fields, but rather legitimate movements in academia challenging long-held theories and approaches. This is the, just my opinion, but based on my own research, the biases and limitations in secular practices in the field of psychology and counseling, which of course relates to psychiatry, are far more evident than fields of religious practice, which are often free to pursue more integrated approaches with future-based goals and expectations of healing and formation. So first of all, that was one of the more intelligent comments Seriously? ever. <laughs> Jeez. I needed a dictionary for like some of dissertation. that. That's like a dissertation. And then this one... This one's pretty awesome um, as well. Have you gotten any messages yet about your hot take <laughs> on Christian, non-Christian mental health professionals? I didn't I, know it was a hot take. Well, I didn't know either. I feel like for maybe one of the first episodes, I might disagree on something. Isn't that so lame that my first message to you all is about something I disagree with? Maybe I can make this into a compliment criticism Oreo. So she's awesome. You guys rock. Thank you so much for diving into Revelation, empowering women to be a bold force for good in the church. Amen. Criticism. And I like that she labeled it. She labeled it compliment, criticism, and then there was another compliment. So this is the criticism. As someone who has dealt with depression in the past, and I'm so sorry to hear that, and as a student finishing my bachelor's in psychology with an emphasis in counseling, I have a hard time untangling spirituality from mental health. Of mm -hmm. course, a Christian counselor can still encourage a non-Christian coping or 
encourage non-Christian coping strategies and skills like CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. And of course, a Christian can learn skills from a non-Christian on how to do mental health gymnastics. However, I believe that a Christian would have more success with a Christian counselor due to how much spirituality affects our mental health. A surgeon can cut off your leg without having many moral implications, but a non-Christian counselor can only give you so much hope. I know everyone has unique circumstances, but for me, Paul's letters gave more healing to my depression than any counselor I ever had. I resonated with the phrase, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Did I misunderstand your suggestion for the young listener to see whatever kind of counselor he can find? I'm starting to type too much, so I'll move on to another compliment. So first of all, um, thank you both for the uh, rejoinders, the critiques, um, the Oreo, Oreo sandwiches. Uh, we're all grateful for those. And, and they, Everybody loves Oreos. They seem to uh, share the common thing that, hey, what, we're, what we were trying to separate is actually much more tightly wound together. And I don't know about you, Timothy, I think I was, I was not meaning um, that there aren't Christians out there who employ sort of non-Christian therapies. I was trying to take aim at, at a, a Christian, Christian counseling as a sub-industry that isn't the licensed, researched, academic field. That's, that's the part where I was having having trouble uh, that's the part i'm most familiar with are christian yeah. counselors who um uh aren't always uh i don't i don't know how to say this without sticking my foot in my mouth but who aren't always well trained in current <laughs> research or whatever approaches so so your point i mean tim can we agree the point is taken that point is taken and you still stand by what you said Hundred percent. Okay, so the point is not taken for Tim. Um, I understand the point. Uh, okay, we understand. I've taken the point. it to heart. I've wrestled with the content, and I've come out unchanged in the same spot. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a critique of Christian counselors. I think the point we were making was like, go to somebody who's who knows what they're doing. If they're a Christian, great. Hallelujah. And you and I both are like, we work in. Christian circles. So yeah. the fact that my therapist, I believe, is a Christian, but we don't just sit there and talk about our faith. Yeah. Has been helpful because of the work that I do. Yeah. But she's also like, we were just talking about this yesterday. My wife and I went out for lunch and we were talking about our therapist, nice. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> and she, like, she'll come up with, you know, my wife and I are wired so differently. So she'll be dealing with something with her that's very intentional with mm -hmm. what she needs. And then she'll come to me and she'll, Say something. I'm like, well, you know, I'm I'm thinking that through, and I don't know that I think that that will work for me. Here's why. And I, she will take that. She'll receive what I say in response to her suggestion. Then mm. I watch the gears turn as she processes all that information and pulls from her well of knowledge and tools and understanding, and then says, "I see what you're saying. Let's try it this way." Mm. And I like seeing her expertise at work is yeah so reassuring and so encouraging and so helpful yeah if you can the find fact that she's a christian is great yeah yeah exactly if you can find a really competent counselor who happens it to be a christian fantastic great but if you if if you're there, your choice is between christian counseling as a right. kind of a field of um you know that's not always super accredited or whatever 
Um, we talked in the past about how many pastors, at least when we were growing up, I don't know if it's still the same way, but like a pastor would do the majority of the counseling. Right. Even though they were not necessarily trained in that field. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm going after. Yeah. And, and, you know, to which some will say, well, but shouldn't pastors be the first line? And often, like we refer, um, and and that's not all we do. Right. I mean, the job isn't just to refer to other people and then, hey, be, you know, be warm and well fed. We'll see you later. Good but, luck. but I'm, you know, in my experience in church environments, there is a very specific kind of Christian counseling that um, I don't I don't know is the academic kind. And that's kind of what I'm uh, trying to go after a little bit. So as we've explored things like prayer on here and the what prayer can often ask of you in partnering with God and being right. active in the things that you're praying for and that kind of stuff. Sometimes just praying away mental health issues and that kind of stuff is yeah. not going to do. So I actually could, could make it worse. I actually receive the points, Tim. So That's I good. receive we the points. Be, yeah. We got to have a good tandem here. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so Tim is unchanged. <laughs> I'm, I'm partially changed in how I would articulate that better. So thank you. We also got a really great question that I thought was so good at clarifying something that we did not mean to say. Mm. Hi, hi, Voxology (laughs) Podcast. I couldn't help but feel a little embarrassed listening to your most recent episode. Uh I was, I know, I was recently in a situation (laughs) where I, as a woman, enforced the Billy Graham rule. Oh, interesting. Yep. My husband and I are attending a church. Uh, We started attending a church during COVID. It's a small church trying to rebuild. Um, we saw when we started attending areas that we could help out. I'm musical, so I joined uh, with the worship team. Because of the small numbers involved, I ended up leading worship with just one other guy several times. And for practice, it would just be the two of us alone in a church building, which didn't sit well with me. Um, what, what the worship leader that I was leading with didn't know is that the reason that the church had shrunk um, was because the previous worship leader, a paid staff member, had taken advantage of women on his mm-hmm. worship teams. I don't know all the details. Uh, it could have been worse. Because of the previous situation, because I don't know him well, I asked that we practice with at least one other person around. We have practiced in my home. My husband is there, and he has said we could do the same at his house with his wife present if we can't arrange for anyone to be at the church. A lot of your conversation, do you think I should have done something differently? No. I was thinking of those brave people who decided to keep their community together through a scandal and how it might affect them if they found out we were practicing alone together. But it might also have been my purity culture training showing, so it's hard to know the motivation. Okay. I thought this was such a wonderful... And this is where, guys, thank you that that you write in and critique or ask questions or make us clarify or whatever. Um, if uh, this is what I'd say, I don't know what you would say, Tim, but the fact that she's a woman and initiating changes the dynamic completely for me, because one of the critiques of the Billy Graham rule is that if, if women could never be alone with men, then, then women are restricted because men typically hold, you know, most of the power in organizational environments. Um, uh, in this case, uh, I love your sensitivity to the fact that there was a prior issue right. between a male worship leader and a female uh, worship person. 
And so you would be concerned with appearances. I think that's totally acceptable, but also that you just weren't comfortable with it. I think that what we're not saying is that you shouldn't have boundaries in any way, shape, or form. Right. It's that it's that sometimes a, a, a rule like the Billy Graham rule will actually sexualize scenarios that aren't meant to be, and they'll rob us, 100%. rob yeah. us of siblingship. And so, you know, if um, I mean, if people decide to have affairs, they're going to decide to have affairs. Um, a Billy Graham rule isn't going to, you know. Uh, like put much of a roadblock in a heart that is intent on that. Um, but it does have lots of other downsides that, you know, I think we were exploring. So no, you have nothing, nothing, nothing to be embarrassed about. You were wise and safe. And that was a great idea. So I don't know. Totally. You want to add anything to that? No, I think she demonstrated discernment within that. That's right. Right. So we, oftentimes these rules or ideas get broken down to just hot or cold and you know like right wrong and there's a like and that's it it's just these really simple compartmentalized categories and you're either in one or the other and unfortunately humanity us as humans in existence together do not work that way there's so many different nuances and situations so that sounds like a situation where she assessed it discerned that this would be in the best interest of everybody involved to proceed in that way. Yep. The difference is that she had, because it was her call, she had the agency in that situation to make that call. Usually, as you just articulated, the Billy Graham rule or the Mike Pence rule or whatever strips somebody of agency and doesn't allow them to be a part of a conversation or a part of something. And that's kind of what we were talking about is also it, it lets it, like you said, it over-sexualizes the situation and it, it's, it, it takes away the demand for men to have any responsibility or agency themselves with how they handle or approach women. Like not every situation is a sexual situation and you should be able to govern yourself in a way that allows a woman to meet with you and not strip her of an opportunity or whatever just because you can't control yourself. Like men have a responsibility to start taking control of their yeah. own selves and stop putting all the blame on women. So that was kind of more of the, so I, I agree. I think she handled that really, really well. That was smart. It was wise. There's a lot of other circumstances around there that were unique to that situation, which is what we're called, I think as humans to do is to discern and make good decisions for the current situation that you were in and not just blanket everything. Mm-hmm which is also the therapy thing. Don't blanket everything. Like if it's a great Christian counselor, wonderful. See that person. If it's not, but that's somebody who's really well equipped to help you govern through a mental health crisis or issues. Great. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And that's, you know, Jesus puts the onus, I mean, back on men. And, and again, I mean, the big critique was of this is just that it, it, makes it seems to in some cases make women the issue if women initiate this i mean i for their own you know um uh appearance of evil or uh you know just feeling safe or whatever hallelujah no i'm sure that's not an easy thing for a woman to um suggest yeah and so you know it's it's great that she uh had the you know felt comfortable enough had the courage to say hey i think maybe we should approach this this way and also kudos to the guy that 
uh, she was leading with that was like, yes, that's, that, that's great. Let's, you know, we can do it here at my house with my wife or your house with your husband or whatever. I don't know. So it seems like everybody navigated that in a, and it's great for the church too, for the appearances. I think that's right. Like we'll often talk about things about like living above reproach or those kind of things, but they're always, even those are blanket statements that don't require, or we have made them so that we don't, it doesn't require us to think through yeah. the nuances of every situation and what it means to, to be above, you know? So I don't know. I just, I, yep. I agree. Nice. Thank you for emailing in. Hey, Seth. Yeah. Hey, go in the bathroom, honey. We're recording. Thank you. That's his new floppy place, master bathroom. Just, he likes the acoustics. Now, <laughs> let's do some revelation, Tim. Oh. Last uh, episode, we talked about chapter four, chapter five, and how a lot of... Domitian. Yes. And I like that somebody ran that through chat GPT just to, just to, uh, Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's just amazing. To, just to make sure. <laughs> just to double check your work. Yes, exactly right. Um, I, you know, I feel like, um, it, so on, on one, you know, end of the spectrum, revelation is in dialogue with the imperial propaganda of the day. And we tried to show that particularly last episode, this, time I want to show, show more how it's in dialogue with the Old Testament. So mm. we're going to split chapter four from chapter five, although they fit together, but there's such significance of what happens in chapter five that we need to set it up by looking only at chapter four. So as a reminder, here's our text. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking from chapter one Speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and currently have their being. Boom. 
So <laughs> nothing, let's get weird. Nothing, yeah, seriously, nothing confusing about that. So what I want to do is I want to remind us that this image is directly related to the issues we were talking about with the seven churches, who, some of which are being persecuted and are materially suffering. Some of them are blessed because they're not being persecuted at all. They fit right in to the status quo. Others are tolerating false teaching that the teaching itself is an accommodation to Roman uh, cultic practices. And so this isn't the after this he says, after this, I looked. When you see the word after, um, it's very easy to read that as, oh, this is the sequence of events. What he's giving us are the sequence of visions that he received, but they're not in linear historical order, as we'll see down the road. A lot of these repeat themes, a lot of these say the same things multiple times. So the after this, again, we talked about calendarizing. It's one of those words where you're like, okay, so we wrote the letters. Now, this then is what's going to happen mm. or what is happening. And that's not how after this is, um, is being used. This is not the historical order of the events they depict. Rather, it's the way the, the, um, the visions unfold to John's imagination. Make sense? And this is yeah. consistent with how this is used all throughout the rest of the book. Um, in, in this chapter, there are so many Old Testament callbacks, it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> and so we're in dialogue both with Roman propaganda and we're in dialogue with the Hebrew scriptures, right? So like in Ezekiel, like chapter four channels Ezekiel one uh, like crazy. If you go read Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation 4, you're like, oh yeah, there's so much that's similar here. Revelation 5, as we'll see next episode, channels Daniel 7. All right, so when you wrap all this together, th these, are, these are totally congruent throne room scenes. Revelation isn't giving us anything new yet. The new part will come in chapter 5 when the Lamb receives the same worship as the one who sits on the throne. That's, that's the big gut punch um, that is coming in chapter 5. But chapter 4 is just a throne room scene like you get in Ezekiel, where you have four living creature, creatures, a sea of crystal, a throne surrounded by fire on which God is seated. All of that's from Ezekiel 1. Now, verse 1, where he says, after this I looked, we talked about the idea that the after this isn't... Um, uh, a sequential ordering of events, but rather this is just what he saw next. The open door, that's an Ezekiel reference, of course. In verse 2, the first mention of the throne. I see a throne. The word throne is, is used a ton in Revelation 4 and 5. It's mentioned 17 times in just these two chapters alone. Um, and 21 times the rest of the book. So it is, it is one of the most dominant images and it's not coincidental, right? The, the whole throne language of the Caesars, I mean, is called into question by the throne language applied to God and the Lamb. And so, and, and throne, of course, has all sorts of intimations of sovereignty and power and glory and honor and strength. And it under, undercuts, as we've talked about, so many of the claims that Caesar was making for himself. Um, in verse 3, we read about... Um, these precious stones, and these precious stones are really, 
really interesting because um, on the one hand, they are um, found on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. Um, they're also found in the walls of the new creation city at the end of Revelation. And this whole rainbow idea, you know, we hear rainbow um, and we think clouds. They heard rainbow and thought light. And so um, the idea is that, like there was a brilliant and dazzling light that came from the throne that was reflected. And remember, this is something we'll get into later, that the earthly tabernacle and temple was a reflection of what was going on in the heavenly tabernacle and temple. So, of course, you're going to get all these callbacks, like the Sea of Glass is um, a callback to the Bronze Sea in Solomon's temple. And it also is in reference, this bronze sea is also in reference to the Exodus story, the sea, the Red Sea that was parted. And so that gets that gets a call back later in Revelation is there are these two angel, angels next to the Red Sea who are um, who pull martyrs through trial and tribulation and they sing a new song, which is what the Israelites did when they passed through the Red Sea in Exodus 15. Right, So you have just loads, I mean, you're just stacked layer upon layer of Old Testament imagery. Verse 4, the 24 thrones, uh, and upon them are 24 elders. And the number 24 is super significant in the Old Testament temple complex. Uh, there were 24 orders of priests, there were 24 Levitical gatekeepers, and there were 24 Levitical worship leaders. Okay. Also... Uh, later in Revelation, we get the idea that the, the New Jerusalem is built on the, um, the apostles and the patriarchs. So you have one option for understanding 24 also is the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Israel, that, that the New mm. Jerusalem is built on their testimony, which totally fits the context too. So it's, it's, it's definitely a temple image. Um, that the Old Testament temple represents. But there's enough later in the book to say, oh, well, this could also just represent the holistic people of God, you know, standing um, and, and, and having, um, priestly or, having priestly orders that represent the whole people of God, Old and New Testament. Uh, the four living creatures, so much debate about what they are. Some think they're four different aspects of Jesus. Um, others think that because they're emphasized as living creatures, that they represent all of created life. So the animal huh. kingdom and the human kingdom and the bird kingdom, we don't have any fish, but you know, bummer for them. They're just like an amalgam of all the different yeah. species. Yeah. Well, just they're representative. It's they're like, yeah. these are, rep these are clearly symbolic representations of something of, well, of <laughs> this concentric worship with the throne at the center mm. so you have the living creatures right there and then you have the elders right there and then you have you know you you have like these can if there if the bullseye is the throne you have these concentric circles sort of radiating outward where we and so it makes sense that these would be representative numbers it's the whole church is worshiping and every living thing is worshiping that seems to be the idea um and uh, and one of the things that you know is encouraging to the persecuted first century minority church is the idea that they have uh, a place and representation in the heavenlies currently. Like they're not, their eyes tell them they're a persecuted minority of just weird people denying the Roman gods. 
But the heavenly story is a story where they're actually participating in something that the whole universe is going to end up doing mm. uh, at the end of history. The idea, of course, in verse 5, flashes and lightning and sounds and peals of thunder coming from the throne. This is, man, this is the Exodus vision. Exodus 19. Um, and, and, and we also, it's interesting, later judgments will issue from the throne. And those judgments have a lot in common with the plagues of Egypt, as we'll see, just to tantalize that a little bit. So this, this Exodus vision uh, of, of lightning and thunder combined with kind of the plague imagery against Egypt sort of gives you, along with the sea of glass, this picture of a new Exodus um, and mm. new creation that is taking place. I mean, again, it's just so much. Even the seven lamps that are the sevenfold spirits of God, there's so much there. That's from Zechariah 4. Um, and <laughs> and um, there are all sorts of textual variations to it. We think it's in reference to the Spirit. Uh, the, the Sea of Glass we've already talked about. Uh, four living creatures we've talked about. The four living creatures also issue judgments later in the story, which is interesting. That's why the eyes matter, I guess, is that they see. They mm. see what's happening um, on the earth. Not really sure if that's true or not. Um, but notice, uh, once we've described kind of the array of people around the throne, we get our first hymn. Now, there are seven, as we've talked about, doxologies throughout the book of Revelation or outbreaks right. of liturgical worship. And, and here, of course, is holy, 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 um, the Lord Almighty, one who is, you know, uh, who was and is and is to come. That comes from Isaiah 6, another throne room scene. And in, in Hebrew, of course, if you want to emphasize something, you don't have, you know, italics or boldface type. You repeat it. So holy, holy, holy is to emphasize his holiness over every other attribute. And holy here doesn't yeah. mean morally pure, although that's certainly part of it, but it means holy other. It's not the uh, buddy Jesus, um, you know, that <laughs> was common years ago where Jesus is just kind of my best friend and my boyfriend and we hang out. It's Jesus is my homeboy. He, Jesus is my homeboy. He is the Lord Almighty. And then in the appellation... <laughs> <laughs> who was and is and is to come, of course, was used of Zeus. Um, it was mm. predated massively by the Old Testament, who would speak of God this way. But um, it was also currently in that era used of Zeus. So, I mean, you're just getting another jab. It also was uh, Brett the Hitman Hart. I totally... The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. It's it's almost Trinitarian, man. That's freaking amazing. <laughs> um, the... <laughs> The, in verse 9, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks uh, mm. to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. That's a Daniel phrase found in Daniel 4 and in Daniel 12. Um, the him who lives and uh, rules forever and ever, um, that sits in counterpoint to the, to the short, you know, by comparison reigns of the evil earthly rulers. This is, a, this is a throne that endures, has always been, and always will be. Um, and and the, most, the, the most ridiculous, um, you know, knock, Domitian, the thing we knew about Domitian is that he insisted on being called Lord and God. Yeah. And, um, and so this last phrase in chapter four, you are worthy, 
our Lord and God. Like it's straight <laughs> from the Domitian playbook. Yeah. To receive, and then these are all Roman words, glory, honor, power. Why? Because you created all things. You're the great benefactor. It's not Caesar. And, and by your will, they were creating. Your will is the only one that matters. And they're currently upheld in their being. So, so you have this picture that's drawn from the Old Testament, absolutely, of concentric circles of, of beings around the throne, both angelic and kind of, I don't know, earthly, um, or rep <laughs> earthly representatives, I should say. And they're shouting this, this claim from Isaiah that he is holy, um, and he is the Lord Almighty, and he's eternal. And then the living creatures join in, um, or when they do that and they offer their crowns, the elders join in and then they sing this other hymn that is a direct, you know, mockery of sweet Domitian and the claims uh, about himself. And, and the idea is that here God is utterly and absolutely worthy of worship because he's creator. Like everything comes from him. And, and we haven't gotten into like benefactors, the Roman uh, benefactor system, a benefactor uh, is somebody, and we've talked a little bit about this, um, a patron-client sort of relationship, but a benefactor was someone who just gives gifts and is then, because they give gifts, they're uh, accorded glory and honor. And that yeah. that is the Roman patronage system right there. That's One the of, Wasn't it loyalty too or something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that? Yeah, like, that's part yeah. of the honor is the loyalty. Yeah. Yep, embodied loyalty. And um, so what the hymn is declaring is that God, because he created everything, he is the ultimate benefactor the and ultimate therefore the yeah. only one worthy right. of glory and honor. It's a, it's a decent argument. Yeah. I mean, but it, but it <laughs> undercuts because one totally. of the things that Caesar claimed is that Caesar was the, the benefactor of all benefactors. Um, and Augustus, I mean, I, there, there's an inscription we read episodes ago where they, they talk about he was the chief benefaction from the gods, that, that he's the greatest gift the gods could give. And so, <laughs> so you know, men have always have been... repeated that. Yeah, yeah men, men have always been, been thinking they're God's gift. But in this case, you know, he was trying to, he was trying to do it. And, and so, you know, you sit in... You sit in a you know a, a view like this, and there's so much more we could say. I mean, there are many. Man, it, it's hard to do on a podcast, not visually, uh, because there are just many connections we can draw and words that are used and repeated elsewhere. But th this is meant to be evocative. This isn't a doctrinal, um, you know, restatement of important points of doctrine. Although it certainly communicates doctrine. This is. This is a declaration of allegiance um, about how the church should orient itself and why it should orient itself this way as opposed to any other way. And you know, there's this great, this great uh, picture in the Lord of the Rings, um, the Return of the King. I've always thought there was this little scene where. Um, where the the you know there are eighteen different goodbyes, but this is where, um, you know he is officially kinged um, uh, over everybody. Man, I, from, his name escapes me. Aragon is officially king. Yeah. yeah, he's he's kinged by Gandalf, and and then the hobbits start to bow, and and they're like, you should bow to no one. And then there's this quick, like maybe 
half a second shot to three individual faces in the crowd. And they're, they're, the whole shot is them taking off their hats and waving them in celebration, right? That's the shot. That's all they do in the entire movie. They're not seen anywhere else. And, you know, the, the, the joke that I've always, you know, thought about um, was, you know, what happens, what, what did those people, those actors who get a half a second of screen time, what was the joke that those people would, would make? you know, to their friends? Like, would they just say, yeah, 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 I mean, I have a little part in Lord of the Rings, or, or would you imagine, like, I would go, I would go, like, dude, I have a huge part in the Lord of the Rings series. Like, this is a big deal. You are going to be so Watch impressed. For me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? I mean, it would just be a little weird if they declared that they were super a super important part of the story. And what this scene in Revelation kind of evokes is a little bit of that, Right, that that our job with the little bit of screen time that we get is to sort of you know take our hats off and wave them around and celebrate the king, and that's it. And um, it's this beautiful kind of calling into question of American narcissism, uh, even in mm. you know, and how important all of this is supposed to be, and how significant all of us are, and you know, and hallelujah, we we are significant and we are beloved specks of dust and all of those sorts of things. But there's a counter to that. <laughs> That this throne room introduces where it's like, you know, here's what human history is going to, here's where human history is going to go. No one's going to be sitting there saying, hey, man, do you know I had a podcast um, that, you know, was decent back in the day or, you know, I led a big church or whatever, all the dumb. I mean, it just is such a great reminder. Like Francis Chan had this great line years ago where he's like, where people would say, hey, I wonder if they're watching me from heaven, you know? And, 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 you know, the, the people, our relatives who've died, they've passed on. Do they watch us? You know, do they watch us in heaven? And, and Chan had this very humorous line about, no, I think there's better things to watch um, <laughs> than you eat toast, you know, in the morning or whatever. And so right. there's this, you know, and, and you can see how for persecuted churches, man, this, this image speaks so much hope. And, I don't know. Our whole culture is obsessed with reality TV, so right. Ch Chan might be wrong. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Maybe we do want to watch each other, you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. eat cereal or something. But like the first, the first dumb sort of thing that at least communicates to me always is like I'm so, I'm such a bit player. Like mm. I'm privileged to get however many years of screen time in my job. You know, sort of literally is to sort of wave my hat and celebrate the king and kind of move on. And um, and so there's this great sort of perspective that an image like this at least provides, you know, for someone. Um, well, then it prompts you to ask quite like, because then it becomes, that comes a binary. We're so, we love our binaries so much where it's like, I'm either of utmost importance as an individual right. or I'm not. Right. And then it's a period. But instead, it's like, hey, okay, if it's not, if I'm not the center of the universe, and I know that's a dramatic way of saying that, but then, okay, now what? Like, what then right. is this asking of me, or what role do I play within this, and why, and how do yeah. I approach this holistically with that understanding? Right. Or and, just be bummed that I'm just a that I'm a one little speck on a long line of specks. Right. Right. Exactly. And it, and it's it's possible to find your significance. Um, and hold on to the humility of just being dust, you know, 
and and yeah, another and way like how do you how do you do that constructively or how do you do that in community or what yeah. we talked about we kind of mentioned at the end of one of the episodes like how do you how do you how do you as an individual not be individualistic or you know like how do you exist within the, a community of people if you're not the main character like we all grew up with like saved by the bell and shows like that where there is a main character who speaks to the audience breaks the fourth wall Mm-hmm. And I think we often are like the Truman show. Like right. we think we're another reality TV. We think we're the main character. And so the plot revolves around us. Right. And that's not always like a front of brain conscious. No, no, not, not at all. We just grow We grew up in a culture that has right. instilled that in us. And then the church came alongside and said, yeah, yeah, you are an individual that is important to have an individual relationship with God and ask him into your heart and do your quiet times by yourself. And yeah. So it is interesting to unwire that because then it you start to your brain tells you it's a negative, right? To not be the main character, right? Or the most important piece of the puzzle, and but then you have to like flip the script on that to understand what your part really is in all of this, right? Which is interesting. Yes, yeah, and and yep, because we're also going to find out that we're priests that reign forever and ever. You know, with I mean, it, it's this it's this strange. Like, I, I think even Jesus does this. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be first, you have to be last. Mm-hmm. Um, like this strange reversal, but you you hold all of this intention, and that's kind of what drives worship, right? This the whole point. Bowing down is the point of like that's the response of the creatures bowing down, and and ten times bowing down is to the lamb, and to the one who sits on the throne, and eleven times it's to the beast. Or, um, or to the uh, the beasts or the dragon, and and so Revelation can be understood as a war uh, of of worship, right? The word worship in mm-hmm. Greek, one of them is this word that we use for bowing down. When you know the, you fall down and cast your crowns, which would be a great name for a band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and I know one of the things that you're super passionate about, Tim, is reclaiming what worship is and obviously what what revelation 4 is doing for us is giving us a much more robust vision of what worship is because it's saying several things simultaneously number 1 it's assuming we're all going to worship something that worship no one mm-hmm. gets out of this you all we all bow down to something uh, and and maybe not just one maybe it's multiple things if you're like me but secondly your, your worship isn't about what you say or about what you sing. It's about the orientation of life. Hmm. So the bowing down here isn't just, yeah, so if everyone's bowed down, then you know, you're actually worshiping. No, no, no. Because you could not bow and be worshiping, and you could bow and not be worshiping, right? The issue, though, is the orientation towards the center, the throne. This is the center-focused you know, thing we're always coming back to. And it's construed here in very political terms. Yeah. That's the part that that is, I, I think for me, a part that really jumps out, and I know you resonate with too, you've done some Wanderer stuff on this, where worship here is civil disobedience. W- worship mm-hmm. here is resistance. Worship here is like an act of justice. Um, it, it's not only proclaiming the counter narrative that Jesus is king, but it's doing it using the language that was specifically used by the beast, right? Yep. To do so. Yep. 
And so, so the thing that this captures for me is which is such a baller move, like using, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not violent. It's not a violent protest, but it's a very intentional. Yes, targeted reframing and taking what is being you. Yeah, it's just so it's very so, smart. So to subvert something, yeah, is to use the language and imagery of one story to tell a different story using the same language and imagery. Right. So this is very subversive totally. literature. And and the thing that 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 I think we miss, at least I do, um, and I and I continually have to be reminded of it, is that is that the church, the the social reality of the church and all of its work on earth is political. It's not partisan. Right. And and we as Americans have a really hard time separating the two. Yeah. If it's political, that means necessarily, by definition, it's partisan. And what we're what we want to hold on to is the idea that that the image here and and all throughout Revelation, every time we encounter worship in Revelation, um, it's 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 channeling Old Testament and undercutting Rome all at the same time. And um, and so you know the the issue with like having a flag an American flag in a church service is that's confusing politicalness with partisanship because you could say, well, yeah, but I'm pro-American. That's not bad. Well, but revelation is full of the worship of every tongue, tribe, and nation. So unless you're going to put all the flags of every nation in the sanctuary of a church, then you shouldn't put one above all to the exclusion of all the others. Or you've just Ooh, become... Hot, take. hot takes, hot takes. No, I mean, that that's that's just what this means, right? The, the worship in um, Revelation is transnational. So there, it, it cannot be captured by any nation state. It's trans-ethnic, right? It cannot be captured by any one people group, right? So, so the image here is that God is setting up an alternative polis. And a polis is just a, a, a group of people who are organized together towards some end. Yeah, And that's why we can say the church is political because all politics is it's the social ordering of people, right, for... Um, certain means, uh, uh, certain ends, whether it's security or um, provision or protection or whatever. And so this kingdom of God is a social reality in the historical situation we find ourselves in. And that that historical situation we find ourselves in um, has to be countered by the political nature of the church, not endorsed. You All right. Know? So can I ask a question? Totally. So you look at something like the Sean Foyt movement during COVID, right? So the right. let us worship going around and doing these big worship things that were defying city and county ordinances. And so right. on paper, that sounds like what you're saying, right? right? An entity that exists, uh, a kingdom entity that exists that defies the, whatever they think is the ill logic of the state right right it is right. a polis that is moving to be a counter narrative to what the government is telling them how how do you see that as different oh that's such a great question right because we because because guys like sean foy would say yeah we're totally being civilly disobedient or you remember john MacArthur wouldn't close the church down it's like yes. the state doesn't get to tell the church when it can and cannot meet yeah right and and there's a little tiny bit of that that I think is true. 
Right? I mean, that, no, not, I'm not saying I agree with the, the claim in this instance, but I can imagine right. you're living in, in some parts of, of you know, communist countries or wherever, and the church is outlawed, and you're still meeting. Yeah. So I think Actual there's... persecution. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it. So, so the, the per, the, where we would disagree is on the persecution, right? That, the, that where we are civilly disobedient comes in any place we are called to deny that Jesus is Lord. And, mm. um, and now, you know, maybe MacArthur would say something like, well, yeah, I mean, our meeting on Sunday is a denial that Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. which I would say, okay, well, in the text, I don't, you know, I, I don't see, um, I mean, if you really want to go literal on the text, then you should be meeting every day. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and the fact that you're not, I mean, you know, not you, just bowing on Sunday morning, which you kind of hit with like the, what is your overall orientation? Not just your. totally. So I, I'm, you know, if somebody says this is the issue I want to die on, you know, COVID and staying open and whatever else, I personally disagree with that. But I think there is re- that there are, there are, there's enough in the Bible that opens up the possibility that, um, that we should, there, there should be at some point a recourse for the church to simply say, we will not obey the state. Yeah. I, I think that was a poorly chosen and fought example of that. And I don't think that was a denial of Jesus's lordship. And in fact, you know, it seems like, um, and, and again, it, you know, all the stuff that's coming out now, I don't want to relitigate any of that. But I do want to acknowledge that when you ask the question about like Sean Foyt, I would, one of the things that, that I find disturbing about his ministry is that it endorses America. It's Mm -hmm. not neutral. It's not, it's not a, Hey, you know, we're worshiping God, um, in the face of persecution or whatever. It's we're, we're worshiping God with a very, um, uh, partisan view of what America should be like and is in its role in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's where when you conflate partisanship with the political nature of the kingdom, this is exactly what Jesus was saying no to when, you know, the great tempter was saying, I'll right. give you all the kingdoms of the world. Totally. Right? Yeah. right? And, and and power. I mean, the whole the whole thing. There you cannot and and if we want to get into politics, we can. But but I just want to draw out that you cannot sit there and read a, a, a phrase that says, you alone are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and thanks. And then, out at the same time, say, hey, Domitian, you are worthy, our Lord and God. Right? That, that throne room calls into question all the pretender throne rooms you know, in, in the vast enterprise of human history. And the people of God then are to see their worship as a declaration of allegiance. Like when we do the national anthem anymore, and I love, I, we've talked about this a, a zillion times. I love being a part of America. Love it, love it, love it. But I find myself just praying the Lord's Prayer instead, not because mm-hmm. I'm some radical that hates America or whatever, but I find myself wanting instead to proclaim loyalty to Jesus as King rather than loyalty to my nation state. Now, yeah. I have loyalty to my nation state, and that is expressed in all sorts of ways. But Paul is so clear, as was Jesus, that our allegiance is to him 
uh, over and above any particular expression of nation-stateness. So if you believe in the Republican vision of America as the nation-state or the Democratic vision of of America as a nation-state, by all means. The issue is when we think that God endorses those or that the church then becomes a place where we are baptizing um, partisan politics um, with Jesus talk. And and yeah. that... Are you ready for that? We're about to get to a whole new season of it. Oh, good feels Lord. feels like we just ended the last season of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and- another example that is a positive example, and it's a little bit different, but um, to look at, like recently, uh, Shane Claiborne just, they're buying, they're buying abandoned homes in Philadelphia, homes that have been abandoned for years. I guess there's more, he said there's more abandoned homes than there are people who are displaced in that area and they're buying them and refurbishing them and selling them for less than they bought them for to families and um, doing the loans through themselves with no interest rates just to help people get homes mm. in the area. And it's like, it's under the radar. So when I juxtapose that with the let us worship campaign, one is trying to get as much publicity as possible. We're pushing back against the mandates in the name of Jesus. And we're worshiping in this big, loud way so you can all see that what we're doing. And then Shane, who's organizing these things that are not necessarily on the main, like the front page, but are actually serving his community and doing it in a way that not only just gives them a gift, but helps them get on their feet through it too. It's like this weird, every time I get in one of these conversations with somebody lately, I feel like everything you know, doing these kind of series have helped me see the congruency of the Bible. And so watching, you know, and I'm sure we'll get to some of the stuff, some of the imagery in Genesis one is being kind of reiterated in certain parts here too, where it's like, there's, there's a lot of congruency here. And when you think about one particular instance in the Bible, it's obvious it's, it's oftentimes connected to so many other ripples. Yeah. You know, and so you're like, you're always trying, you should be always trying to access a more holistic, larger conversation than just the one singular thing, the one verse, I can do all things by a verse taken out of context. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, when I look at this and I look at how, what it means to be, to live in a counter programmed way or as in a resistance to whatever the culture is telling us, that's not just one idea or one performative task, right? So that's not just bowing uh, on Sunday morning, but it's asking of a larger thing that's connected to a lot of other themes throughout the Bible that all work in tandem with each other and all, does that make sense? Like it all supports itself and we get so lost on these, on these particular little things that get taken out of context and then build dogmas around them. Mm. And it's just a, I, I don't know. So even in this conversation, like when I watch him reach back into Daniel or Ezekiel, with a very specific purpose, it's asking us to pause for a second and assess a larger conversation that's being had outside of this little island that he's writing on mm-hmm. to these other instances to show what it is this whole story is about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so encouraging because it's it's such it's so much bigger than our little opinions on that we fight about on totally particular topics. It's like this whole big. Someone talked about it like someone talked about deconstruction as coming out of the basement and realizing there's an entire house above you mm. with all these different rooms and things to see and explore. And it's all part of that house, but we were kind of in the basement in the dark thinking that that was the whole thing. Yeah. And it's just, we're invited into such a larger conversation, which is yep. 
I just, I think so exciting. And that's what an apocalypse is supposed to do. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what it, so it, it, it reveals things that were previously hidden. It enlarges our world. An aptly titled book. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. (laughs) It calls into question the ways we participate in um, whatever empire looks like in our world. But the the big point that we just want to, you know, we we don't want to spend too much more time making it, but it just is worthy of, I think, reflection, is in what ways does our worship in the church call into question the great narratives and uh, injustices of the world? And then in what ways does it support it? Totally. I mean, a lot of the worship that I'm familiar with and again, no surprise here, but it's emotive, it's individualistic, mm-hmm. um, and it's not oriented towards the throne, it's oriented towards me in some strange way. Um, it, and it's certainly not political. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very neutered and very, you know... Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you know what I'm Lord's saying. Lord's Prayer is a great example of that. I like that because I'm trying to, f- if I ever have any free time, I want to do a worship episode on turning the Lord's Prayer into a, a song. Because the time that we've spent in there, A, I just love that. I mean, if you had God with you, you're like, hey, man. A lot of questions could be answered here. Mm -hmm. So I love the question of teach us how to pray. Like, oh, well, we're supposed to be talking to you or whatever. Like, this is great. Let's get straight out of his mouth. Like, what? teach us how to do this. And it's so punctuated and short. I love that. Like, it's just like, hey, okay, this is how you do it. Bang, 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 done. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I imagine they were expecting this like 12-page thing that, you know, reaches into the corners of the universe or something. He's just like, boom. But then, you know, as we've done on this before, how that prayer breaks down and what the things that, you know, like the daily bread, whether or not maybe you already have your daily bread, then what are the implications that are beyond you mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. that and all the we language and us language. And I don't know, I, it, it opens up a lot and it is so counter to a lot of the worship music that we, yeah. Well, even even of. if not just music, I mean, the, the, we ad nauseum complain about the reduction of worship to music when it's a life orientation, right? Mm-hmm. Represented by bowing down. Um, so, so yes, the the music, if we're not careful, seems super thin um, and not at all the kind of prophetic, sustaining sort of worship needed to to build a culture of resistance. Um, nor is it in any way, shape, or form, you know, against the powers and principalities. Seth Erie has made an appearance, and it's just making goofy faces at Mr. Tim Stafford. One of the benefits of our YouTube feed is that you get the face <laughs> of Seth Erie. Hi. Hi. How, how, how do you like the new house? Good. Is good? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You got a yeah. good, good place to do the floppy? Yeah. 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 And we got school tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. You pretty talkative wow. today? Yeah. Mm, I don't think so. Um, all right, so let's wrap it. I don't remember what I was saying, but this is way better. <laughs> uh, 
Seth Erie. Yeah. Would you want to uh, close us today? You want to do Shema? You want to yes. do Shema? Yes. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Shema Israel Adonai Elenehu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor. Yes, love your neighbor as yourself, Tim Stafford. (laughs) Or love your neighbor as you love Tim Stafford. And Seth. Absolutely. And Mike. Yeah, and Mike. He calls me Mike now. There's no dad. Oh, sometimes I get dad. Welcome to Mike's podcast. Well, it's Mike and Tim's podcast, but yes. Well, you know what? He's He's the sole kid in the house now he's the big kid in yeah the house dude now, how so. is it being the only kid here there's no nate there's no hannah it's just seffy and daddy and mommy yeah what do you think of that boring boring yeah man okay anyway <laughs> till next time friends see ya peace 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 Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also Join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.